back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the MVP cast from me, Mark Woods. We're brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check them out at tecompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest in this edition is a former NBA and EuroLeague big with a singularly unique place in basketball history. He's a serial winner. He claimed league titles in Spain, in Greece, and Poland, cups in Russia, as well as the EuroLeague crown, while with Panathinaikos. And he also played for the Orlando Magic and the Phoenix Suns. He is the only Irishman ever to play in the NBA. Our guest is Pat Burke. Pat, welcome to the MVP cast. Mark, thank you for uh, having me on. I'm honored that you thought of me to have it. It's great to hear that introduction. I wish I could hear that every morning when I get up to motivate myself. To... <laughs> and where do you join us and, and how is the pandemic world treating you? Um, I'd say, you know, like anybody else, uh, you know, I. My family and I are, uh, you know, getting to know each other uh, day by day uh, with board games and long conversations and walks and, uh, you know, this being the first time we've all gone through this, it's, uh, it's an interesting time, especially as a father trying to talk to your kids about what's happening and the importance of, uh, you know, keeping social distancing as a priority. And washing your hands. We can never forget washing our hands and we won't forget it for a long time to come. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, we always get this list at the start of each season. It's all players from the different nations of, of the NBA. And then there's the bigger historical list. Emotionally for you, how does it feel to be the one guy who made it to the NBA from Ireland? Um, definitely. It's, there's an honor involved in that, uh, you know, from from such a small nation where the sport um, is not as popular, but it is gaining popularity, um, it's kind of one of those smaller, trivial type things that's in the world. Is you know, people wouldn't know if there was anybody from Ireland, but to be the one is uh, it's a it's a it's a good feeling. And I I don't think I'm the last. I think again, as as I, as I shared, that is the popularity is getting um, to be to be more interest inside of the sport of basketball because it's it's such a, a sport that the Irish love it. It's an indoors, it's fast paced and all that. So I I'd say uh that there there are there are a number of NBA players to come. I mean you left with your family at the age of, of three to go to Cleveland. And I don't think I've ever asked you what was the what was behind the move? How did it come about? Um it's well funny is my parents actually had gone back and forth. This was not the first time that they were going back and forth the, the two of them my dad's from the west he's from mayo and my mom was from tomar Offley. and so they were actually both out um in cleveland ohio visiting family and they didn't know each other they were at one of the uh, uh the irish cultural clubs at a dance at a social gathering and they met each other um and then they i think they reconnected when they were back in ireland and uh they, they got married moved to the united states um, and they had the three. They had the three oldest of my siblings, and then they moved back to Ireland. 
Um, and then I had the three youngest, I was the youngest of the six and they moved back to the States. So I think at that time it was, it had a lot to do with, you know, the, the, the financial structure of jobs and, and looking to, to gain some sort of employment that had some sustainability. So my mom and dad are moving back and forth. And, um, there's a number of factors that play into it because there was family already in Cleveland. So I've, I've never really actually talked to my parents about what was going on at that time. They kept bringing them back and forth. But I, I, I do know that, you know, there was a large group of Irish that were, that were you know, over in Cleveland at the time. I mean, in growing up, you know, splitting your time, you were in Cleveland, you were in Florida as well, but your dad never really allowed you to forget your roots. Not, not at all. I, like any Irishman, I don't think that, uh, yeah, from, from the, the meals down at the, at the dinner table to uh, everything as far as social structure in the family, everything was always about Ireland. Um, I can remember wanting to partake in a number of American activities and it would be, you know, the priority was the Irish, you know, social clubs we were involved in that was going to take precedence. We're going, we're going there first. And it's, oh, you know, I'd really like to go do this thing over here with my, my, you know, teenage American friends. No, 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 you're, you're going to come over here and you're going to do this. So there's just always that influence, uh, you know, and then my parents, of course, having Irish accents, uh, I wouldn't think twice about it, but anytime any of my friends came over, they would they would act like they didn't understand my, my mom and dad as if they were speaking some different language. So there was always that, you know, how would I say that underlying we're not from here type feel to, uh, to, to growing up. And that gives you that little bit of superiority over those other Americans who come up to you and go, oh, we're Irish too. And you go, no, I was born there. Uh, I, I don't know if I would go that far. I don't, I'm not going to puff my chest out and prove anything. So I, I really appreciate the, the, the childhood I had and what my parents did to, to connect me to Ireland um, and all the, you know, growing up the visits and all that. So when you were growing up, I mean, basketball for you, as I, as I understand it, wasn't wasn't really the early you weren't one of those guys that took to the sport early i mean you relatively it was relatively late on that you kind of really focused on 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 the sport yeah um uh you know kind of uh segue into what we were just talking about was my my dad's sister my aunt patricia she was she came over to visit the house when i was probably about eight or nine and uh, uh, her, her son, my cousin, David, he was, she had just signed him up for ice hockey of all sports. And this was like a screeching halt in, in this Irish American kitchen. Like what, you know, what have you done? And so she was, you know, kind of really diving into American culture, American sports. And so she asked my mom and dad and myself, you know, Pat, would you want to do this? And I could just remember kind of the, the silence and the, the uncomfortable, like awkwardness of what do we know about ice hockey? So I took on, you know, a, an active approach to it, just went in, didn't know anything about the sport, ended up getting a bunch of equipment, understanding the culture of, you know, how to get the, how would I say, the, the skating down, the rules of the game, all of that type of thing. And I enjoyed sports very much. And then, 
as it turns out, there was a, a large growth spurt that occurred in my life. Um, around 13, 14 years old, I grew seven inches in one summer. And uh, that's when, you know, the, the uh, my life started to change, not because of anything that I was wanting to do with my height, but the influence of people around me telling me, you know, hey, you know what you should do? You know, and I'm just looking at them like, what? what? And they say, you should go play basketball. And that was at every, every turn, every classroom I entered, every shopping mart I went into, it was, everybody was telling me that. And I, I never had any thought to do it. Um, and so for the first year at, at that, I, I was the first real height that I hit that, you know, was kind of uh, stood up. It was at 6'5". That was when I was around 15 years old. And people were telling me that. And I didn't join the basketball team or try out. And now where I would say, where let's say four people a day inside of my school were telling me to do this. Now with the two extra inches, now it was doubled. It was eight people a day were telling me. So then I just listened to them. I said, I'll give it a shot. And uh, I was miserable. I, I just, you know, <laughs> just total fish out of water, you know, just didn't know how to dribble, didn't have any of the skill sets all the other kids had. And I, I also walked in with... Uh, a new understanding of, and I wouldn't say just, but with people's expectations, you know, nobody wanted to listen to the fact that I'd been playing eight years of ice hockey and at six, seven, I could skate circles around them and all this and the other. They just expected because I was six, seven, I needed to be able to play basketball. And when I couldn't, there was a disappointment to them, which <laughs> it was, you know, at that age, it was very difficult for me to understand because it's like, you're judging me not on my character or my respect level or my life skills. You're judging me on the fact that I can't put this damn leather ball into a metal cylinder. But you did okay in the end. And the, yeah, in the end, yeah. I think, uh, I think I surprised a lot of folks <laughs> from, the, uh, from the early stages of high school and college to, you know, at the end of my career and the introduction you gave me. If anybody is, uh, if anybody's from around that time in my life and they heard the introduction, they said, that can't be the same Pat Burke. <laughs> oh, you're too <laughs> modest, too modest. Um, I mean, you got, I mean, you ended up getting a scholarship to Auburn, which, you know, for those who don't know, is, the, is a big university in Alabama that, that famously produced Charles Barkley. You come out of there and, you know, you go undrafted, but you have an offer on the table from the New York Knicks to go straight into the NBA. Instead, though, you go to Spain, you sign with Tao Vittoria, big club. Why that decision not to, I guess, take the dream shot for maybe a longer and a more exotic game? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people that when you're, when you're, how about I say, the biggest, the biggest fear youth has is fitting in. That's what someone told me one time. And I, I, and I have to agree is, you know, wanting to, to be like everyone else. And when you join something so late, and you're trying to master that skill set. I think I always had that little bit of a, a doubt that, you know, I, I can't do every, whatever else is done. They, they've had, you know, five, six, seven, eight years plus to, to work on these things. So my agent at the time had talked to me and uh, I'm sitting there and, and, and Jeff Van Gundy was the coach of the Knicks and he told me about this offer. And then my agent, who I'd say was a, uh, very smart, very wise. He broke it down. He said, you know, like you said, he said, look, here's, here's the absolute dream. It's right there. If you want to sign with the Knicks, you can do that. 
He said, but I have a coach in Spain who likes you very much and he's going to give you, you know, playing time. You're going to, you're going to totally transform the way you're playing. And he said, the, the biggest thing that people are saying about you outside of your size and your athleticism is your best days are ahead of you. And I don't know, I was open to hear it, you know, because thing. it wasn't a knock, it wasn't saying you're not ready, it was saying, you know, you're, 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 you're going to improve as time goes on. And so I, I don't know, I just, I, that appealed to me more. The idea that I could still become better than what I was, was like, okay, well, I could do it with this opportunity of going to Europe and the, the kind of the, the vision or the picture painted from my agent of the New York Knicks was, look, there's another Pat that's there. He's an all-star. His name's Patrick Ewing. He's going to get all the playing time, and you're not. And, you know, how could you fight that? So I think uh, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where when I talk to kids or camps, they're always, like, looking at me like, you're crazy. I would have gone to the NBA. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of factors to it. I mean, your coach in Victoria, great coach, Sergio Scariola, of course, being with Spain, won lots of major titles, big Olympic medals, now an assistant with the, with the Toronto Raptors. How did he help you make that adjustment to, I guess, what would have been a, a very different style of game to what you'd been used to? Yeah, night and day. Um, you know, there's, um, there's a... There's a there's, a, there's an extreme challenge in talking to somebody about uh, the distinction of something, you know? It's like saying, uh, not to get so deep into it, but it's like saying, if I show my hands and I'd say, which one of my hands is open? And you said this one. I said, how do you know? And you said, because that one's open. Well, I'd say, well, well, what about you know because the other one's closed? And the distinction is that you, you have to know the, the two of them. So. I only at that point, Mark, had the, the, the understanding of the American game. And the American dream of the NBA was last second shots and alley-oop dunks and just, you know, this excitement of the NBA. And it was a very fast-paced game. When I, when I got to Europe, I'm telling you, I was pissed. I felt like I was hoodwinked a bit because the game was so slow, so strategic, that at you know, 21, 22 years old, I, a lot of times in practices, I was taking the ball, kicking it in the stands, pretty much ready to go fight with Sergio all the time. He kicked me out of practice a number of times. And I, I would even talk to my teammates about how this doesn't make sense. And it was, a, it was over a period of time then that when I was talking to my teammates that they would share with me that they were upset by my actions that i was what i was doing was a little childish to have taken on the team's time and do these things and uh it, it it's funny because over the course of that year um with tal ceramica making it to the finals and, and in the end not being it gone that distance and i would say that much success with that group of guys that really taught me the understanding of sacrifice that sometimes you don't think things through to a, to a degree, but that what's, what's influencing you and what's in front of you is, you know, you have to open your mind and, and that's what took place is I realized, okay, if I give in, if I do what they say, then good things can happen. It's not always what I thought. And so I, I started to gain that distinction and that's, you know, kind of leading into, 
the difference I had with the NBA then, as far as going back and actually seeing it with the Magic, and then weighing my option that, that next year after I was done with the NBA and realizing, do I want to play in Europe, you know, or do I want to play in the NBA? Did you find that when you went on, because you go on to a you know, phenomenal string of championships with Panathinaikos, you know, three straight Greek leagues, winning the EuroLeague as well. You know, how much was that first year, the, I guess, even more valuable in the time in, in, in college in terms of giving you this longevity of career? Yeah, uh, that, I think that's, that is kind of what sprouted then the, the understanding of what my agent, Warren Legary, was saying. Like, you, you, if you take this, you're going you're gonna to change. And so going into Greece, you know, I had a great role on those teams. You know, that first year I was, start, I was behind uh, Dino Raja, and then uh, I was behind Rebrecha. And I didn't mind, you know, that the fact was I was going in and producing and getting minutes and, and, and sharing in all of that, cha- those championships. And it was, it was one of those things where my confidence gained to set me up for that final year in Greece with Marusi, you know, to be one of the top players in that league is it was, it was nothing like college, you know, Auburn, Auburn success today is nothing like it was in 90, 92, you know, or 90, 97 when I was there. It's, it was, you know, you, you're, you're working just as hard. The symphony is not producing the same amount of success, but it's still, you're working very hard. Whereas now I was with this other group in Panathinaikos and we're winning. I can still go back and remember when we won that first championship and I was bawling crying because it was the most success then that I had as far as finally winning something. Did you feel that, you know, there was a great progression, as you said, over the three years with, with Pana and you get to that 2000 EuroLeague final four, you, you get through the, the semis, you're into the final against Maccabi and that's a great team. You mentioned Rabraki, Dejan Bodoroga, brilliant coaching staff. You beat Maccabi Tel Aviv in that final. But what I, what I remember about that group is it seemed very, very tight-knit. The harmony, you know, it seemed like it was there on and off the court. I mean, was that a, a really smart and tight roster? I don't know if the answer I'm going to give you is the one that you're thinking is why. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that happens in Europe, I would say, in a, in a very large percentage of teams, um, is there's a very militant approach to achievement. Two practices a day, grueling, just putting in. I've always, I've often said to people, I would never want to take on the position of a head coach in Europe because they're always proving to the person who's paying them how much they're doing to win which sometimes you're doing too much. You're, you know, you've got your players that are getting injured. You're doing all kinds of things that are just, it's, it's, it's overkill. So the Panathinaikos teams, especially with the Obradovich years, were grueling in the sense that we were always working. We were always going as hard as we could. You know, there's no way later on in my career I could have been there because the practices were so hard I would have been injured. <laughs> the... The, the coaching is, is almost, hold on one second. Can you do me a favor? Can you get that, can you take Mabel out of here and close the door? The, 
the how would I say this? The uh, when you're all going through so much adversity, then it's it happens that everybody kind of pulls together and it's much easier, if that makes sense. So it's like we could have had guys who had no type of relationship at all, but since they were all going to the same grueling uh, workouts and all of that, next thing you know, they're bonding a little bit faster. And I think that's one of the, the differences that there's a balance there. That I didn't see that in the NBA, but I, I definitely saw it in the European basketball is if you sacrifice enough, I don't care what's your attachment in your life of all your life experience, your religion, your background, your cultural differences, you go through enough adversity and it all drops. The next thing you know, you're just a human next to another person and you're just tired and you're relating in that way. And, and, and that would, that would kind of summarize Panathinaikos to me is like it's ultimate sacrifice. And you start off in the very beginning. You don't know anybody. You don't know any of the guys in the team. Then you start working, fighting the guys on your practices because you're working so hard. Then after a while, you're fighting other teams. You're fighting, you're joining your brothers in arms because you're fighting other teams. And now you're relating to them. And now, now there's no difference in any one of you because you're all wearing the same brand or uniform and you fight to death for anybody who stepped up in your brother's way. And then at the end of the year, when you've won something, you've just put something stamped that year and said, look, that's the year you won this. And those are your brothers for life. You know, I've, made, I've, I've got some teammates that are as close as, as, as my, my siblings because just what, what we all went through and what we achieved together. When you look at playing in Athens, I mean, obviously there's that incredible rivalry between Pana and Olympiakos and the other teams, AK, that are there as well. And is it a pressure cooster situation to be a player within that city? I mean, maybe you're out and about because, you know, you, half the city loves you, half the city treats you as the mortal enemy. What, what's it like to be in the middle of that? I'd say the situation is... Uh... The pressure happens on game day, you know. The buildup is more for the fans. And the newspapers after the game's over is for the fans as well. But game day, obviously, is when the, the most takes place, you know, during the game. And, um, it, like, it's no experience I've ever had would, would ever equal anything like that. Seeing, you know, from people actually throwing things and being involved in the games and screaming and flares and fires going on and all that rioting, you know, based on, again, it, it, it's, it's to look at it so strange, but it's like to say, look, we're acting out a made up game that James Naismith put two peach baskets, wrote up some rules, and these people are so emotional, they're trying to kill each other not really because of the game itself, but the representation of Olympiakos and Panathinaikos, like, you know, the red and the green. And it's, you're, you're just really an excuse to have a conversation or an excuse to have a fight. <laughs> and sometimes both. Yeah, sometimes both. And then afterwards, <laughs> it's like, you know, let me go buy you a beer. You know, they're, but yeah, I've never, never experienced anything like that. I mean, you went on you know, to play in some great situations. You were in you know, Madrid with, with Real and winning the Euro Cup and the ACB and you know, Kimki Moscow and in Russia and Procom towards the end of your career in Poland. Do you, 
you're traveling a lot, obviously playing the European competition, but what, what's your favorite arena to go into and what was your absolutely least favorite place to have to go to? I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, I, mean, I don't mean to, to be so, uh, I don't know, simplistic about this, but I loved all of it. I don't think I had a place where I dreaded going in. Uh, I enjoyed all nine years in Europe uh, because, you know, I didn't really truly appreciate it till I got older and looking back at it and saying, wow, you, you visited so many different cultures. You know, you got to meet so many different people, experience so many different types of leadership. You know, that's one thing. I had some of the most grueling coaches at times, but now looking back, I appreciate having that experience. Now, at the time, I didn't like what they were doing, but I appreciate understanding what they were doing and why they were doing it and looking back. Uh, teammates, you know, seeing, seeing players, obviously, like Dayan Bodiroga, you know, Johnny Rogers at such an older, older age as a veteran, just keeping himself in shape and what he was doing. Um, you know, just so many, so many guys that you would just look at now and you'd be like, wow, they, they were on a different level as far as what they were looking to achieve and compete. Um, yeah, I mean, I again, it's, I, I, I loved every bit of it. I loved, I loved Poland. Um, I loved, it was funny, a small story is by the end of my career in Poland, I lived in that small little town of Sopo. And I remember when they were bringing me around and they were showing me all these big apartments and wonderful areas. And I said, no, listen, I want an apartment in walking distance of the practice facility. And I don't know, I just, it hit me as like, you know, you're, you're going to work every day. And I thought to myself, if I could just get up and be able to walk to practice and walk back, it would be great because I wouldn't have to sit there and drive. And it was the nicest experience. I went through town every day, you know, meeting new people, going into little shops, getting, you know, fruit and this, that, and the other and produce and just really enjoying that last year of playing. It was, it was, it was, you know, it's funny is after 12 years, you finally figure it out and you're going, geez, I wish I would have done that every year I was in Europe. It's a really nice beach at Supot. It's a really nice stroll along it. Oh yeah. Very nice. The, um, I mean, you came to the event, NBA eventually. I think you were 28 then and when you joined the Magic in 2002. And I remember coming over to interview at the, what is now the Amway Arena. And you, you give me a quote, which I'll read it to you here. When I was asking you about what this was like you know, against expectation against reality, and you said to me, it's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of stress involved, which I think will surprise a lot of people who see this as the land of milk and honey when you make it all the way to the NBA. What was the stress level when you look back on that now with a bit of perspective? I think, first of all, you're dealing, everybody is competitive. There's so many alpha males that are wanting to achieve. Um, when I first got there, you know, I, can't, I was just coming off, let's say, 30 days with the towel, uh, my second stint with uh, Dusko Ivanovic there and, and going up against uh, the training camp. So I came in, I was in great shape. And I was kind of the underdog. People were like, well, who's starting for the Orlando Magic? And uh, that's an exciting experience, you know. First of all, I just was trying to make him, and then all of a sudden I'm the starting center. And one of the things that became a 
apparent real quick is how professional that league is because they scouted me very fast. Every team in the league knew 15 foot in, he's got a nice jump. So at 12 games in, whatever it was, I was like obsolete. I couldn't, I couldn't get a shot off. I couldn't do it. They all knew everything about me. And uh, then I go out of the rotation and you're wanting to be in the rotation and you want to do as, as much as you can, but I just couldn't find it. And I, and I lost my confidence. And I remember sitting there and Tracy McGrady, as good hearted as he was, he would just go up to me and be like, come on, Pat, get your confidence back. And I'm like, oh, really? Wait, wait, can I just pick it up off the floor? Or is it in my pocket? Or do you have it? Did I leave it in my locker? Because I just can't find it. And you're kind of alone in that regard. And you, you see the way a lot of players find their way out of the NBA. Because it's not something that it's so easily you just you just don't you know go to some guru and, of leadership the next thing you know you've talked your way back into finding your confidence I just couldn't find it. And that, was that hard on that team because it was the T Mac team Grant Hill was signed injured, it was a, one of those great teams that had wonderful expectations but never remotely lived up to the to the billing for for so many different reasons. Was it a hard environment when? I guess lots of people within that organization were feeling the heat that year. Um, they were, I wasn't, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on whatever, $14 million a year, and I'm making minimum. I was just happy to be there. So I, everybody's patting me on the back. I, got, I don't have the same pressure. But as far as Doc Rivers then putting a team together, like, I wasn't a stranger to the understanding that, hey, when I was with Panathinaikos, I knew we had this very the most talented team and that the, uh, the Yannakopoulos brothers had put together a very large budget to make that team happen. When I made it to the Magic, you know, you've got, God bless him, when you got Sean Kemp and he's not the Sean Kemp of the Seattle Supersonics, you know, and he's, he's a very large man and you're looking, <laughs> okay, here's his third chance back and, you know, Horace Grant, is running like he's welded together by three rusty bicycles. You know, you're just like, okay, this is, uh, this is not the dream magic squad, you know, that made it to the, to the Eastern conference finals against Michael Jordan twice. It's, so it's, yeah, I, I didn't feel any pressure at all, but I did have an understanding that this was not the best magic team ever. I think we're, I think at the time I, I was, pretty much excited that we even made the playoffs against the Pistons. I mean, your second stint in the NBA, I mean, it, you go into Phoenix to the Suns, that's seven seconds or last team that lots of people remember with immense fondness. Steve Nash is the MVP in your, your first year you're there. Did that seem for you like coming from Europe, that should have been the perfect fit? Because you, yours is big. He also likes to shoot the three on occasion as well. Coming in, what was the vibe for you at the very outset of, of joining the Suns? Um, well, I knew it was kind of a second chance. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm excited about it. And I went in, I was in great shape. Um, I, I still had some spring in my step. So I knew that I wasn't coming in, you know, injured with a bad knee and just a jump shot. I was like, all right, I, I, I can still go. So you're, how would I say, you're still a little bit shocked when you, you, you kind of get it off the plane, you're walking in, you're seeing Steve Nash and Amari and all these guys. So I remember going into practices and 
I had never seen an athlete like Amari at the time. I think he was, he's still, in my opinion, the, the beginning of that hybrid player that you see now. It's, you know, anywhere from like 6'8 to 6'11, you know, uh, thin build, run like a gazelle, uh, vertical. I mean, he had a 40-some inch vertical. He had a 32-inch waist. He was like 6'8, but he had a 7-foot wingspan. And he had two hands like Dr. J. So anything around the basket, he's dunking on everybody and you can't stop him. So it was, it was extremely impressive to see. But I, I remember I got some advice because you know, I was a little bit intimidated by him. And I remember Mark Ivoroni was telling me, he's like, look, you go at him every time you can and just do not back down. And once I did, you could see there was a, a bit of a mental change for him. Like, okay, this guy is, you know, he's, he's coming in strong too. So going into that, that beginning, we sit down uh, in a veterans camp. And I remember Mike D'Antoni had said to everybody, hey, guys, listen, here's the first thing I'm going to tell you. If you don't make it up and down the court, you'll never see the ball. Okay, that's number one. Number two is I play about a seven-man roster. So if you don't make it at seven-man, you're probably going to be mother effing me the whole time. He said, but if you do, you're going to be doing pretty good. There's 14 of us at, at sitting there in that room. We're all thinking we're in the seven top. Everybody is. So you kind of hear it, but you don't hear it. And then as we started, the seven-man rotation was just – it, it became such a divide in the locker room that, yeah, it was a great team to be on, but it was also one of those teams that was, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting and complex situation because they played so fast, seven seconds or less, seven man rotation, and they only made it so far in the playoffs every year. And, and there was, I went through an interview the other day talking about it. The funny thing was, is Mike D'Antoni wouldn't talk to the other seven. He wouldn't, it was almost, uh, it was almost like he was afraid that even if he did talk to him, he wouldn't be able to change the truth of what it was. So why even bother? So towards my second year, yeah, I still good friends with Steve and Amari and Sean, all those guys playing, but the seven who weren't playing after a while, it became, you know, a point where it was like, you, you, you didn't really enjoy it as much. I mean, when you had that, that Suns team, you had 17 win, game winning streak the second year you were there. And there was big championship expectations, get past the, the Lakers and Kobe the first round, you face the Spurs in the, in the Western Finals and lose out. But even though you're not part of the rotation, do you sit there and go, there's my chance to win this title that everyone would love to win going away? Or do you sit there going, I don't really feel a part of this. It doesn't hurt as much. Um, you, you make the initial agreement. And I think this with everything, with, with sports, parents signing up for anything. Once you sign in, you've, you've pretty much made it, a, you know, let's say a legal agreement. I worked my tail off to get into the best shape I could. And for months now, in the beginning, uh, after practices, I'm running and jogging on the sideline, and I'm doing all kinds of extra things. And it got to a point where I'm doing it so much, I have uh, 
I have people coming up to me and they're like, wow, hey, they're talking, they're saying really good things in the coaches' meetings about getting you in. And this is fueling me. I'm like, this is exciting. And so uh, I get to a point where it's just not working out. Like I'm not, I'm not getting any time. And I, I'll never forget that Steve Nash came down into the practice facility early. And I'm on the sideline doing stuff. And he just turns his head and he's like, I can't even look at you. You know, because it was hurting because I'm, I'm working as hard as I can, but I'm never seeing any playing time. So imagine this. This, this is the part where I think everybody has a breaking point. I think it was like four months into that season after doing all this stuff. I just, I didn't show up and I was like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to do the extra running. I'm not going to do the, the elliptical after the games and say, I'm just, I'm just not doing it. If you remember that year, that's when we went to play the San Antonio Spurs. That's where Robert Ory slams Steve Nash into the timetable and, and Boris Diaw and um, uh, Amari step over the line and they get, uh, they get knocked out of playing. They can't play for the next game. The, the only active big man they have on the roster at that point going back to Phoenix is me. And now I remember, now I told you, Mike D'Antoni never talked to anybody outside of those seven. So they haven't even talked to me. Mark Ivoroni is the closest thing I have to any communication to the coaching staff. Alvin Gentry, none of them. So as soon as they get knocked out, up to me, and they start asking me questions like, hey, you know, what have they said? You know, Boris is going to be knocked out. You know, Ari's wasn't. I just let him have it. I'm like, what am I going to do, sit here and lie? I said, they haven't talked to me in months. I said, I, I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm the only one active on the roster. I said, but I haven't even been game ready or tested in whatever it was, five months of play. And uh, you want us to print this? And I'm like, what do you want me to do? And they started asking me. And, and again, I wasn't trying to cut my throat, but I cut my throat pretty good. They asked me, I said, well, who do you think is the better coach, Greg Popovich or Mike D'Antoni? And I said, well, who's won championships? And they said, well, you know, Pop has. I said, who's got – whose rotation's working and whose is not working? I said, last two years I've been here, we go down seven-man rotation, and then we always have these injuries and we can't make it through. Popovich has got a ten-man rotation over there, and he knows how to get guys ready in case something happens. I said, this is – it's an obvious situation. And so – Anyways, they print this. The next day I get home and my agent calls me and he says, hey, are you trying to get kicked out of the league? <laughs> and I said, no. I'm just, I mean, what do you want me to say? Like, you sit there and lie? And uh, Brian Colangelo, who, had, who was in Toronto at the time, he calls my agent laughing and he's like, is Pat trying to get kicked out of the league over there? And I'm like, no. So then the, uh, this is another story probably for another time, but the next year, after that year's over, Steve Kerr is the GM of the team, and uh, Steve Nash is calling me, and he's like, "Hey, you know, it'd be great if you came back." And I think, and I said, "Hey, man, I, I don't think they're going to bring me back." I call up Steve Kerr to apologize. I want to let him know that I am a team player, and this, any other. And Mark, I sat there and I ate a shit sandwich for a good thirty minutes, apologizing, and at the very end. Steve Kerr is like, well, Pat, I really appreciate you calling and apologizing. And so they said, well, we're going to move in a different direction. And I was <laughs> like, well, why didn't you tell me 
15 minutes ago. <laughs> Welcome to the NBA. That's Welcome the to the NBA. I mean, I mean, I know you, like all of us, have been watching The Last Dance, and you know, it, I'm much, as much as we're all filtering it through the eyes of of the Michael Jordan and the greatness of, of, of what he did. What's been interesting, I think for me is that dynamic that existed between him and everyone else. And, you know, you saw last, the last edition, Steve Kerr of all people talking about, you know, the respect that he had to get of Jordan and how those role players were often ignored, cast out that they people like Scott Burrell were pushed extra hard. So they were ready. Is that, is that an odd experience or was that your experience where you're nice guys? I mean, not Steve Nash, a great guy. Mario Stoudemire, a great guy. Sean Marion, likewise. But you have to adjust to a hierarchy in the NBA, which, although it exists in Europe, is not probably quite at the same level. Uh, yes and no. I think that, you know, what we're seeing in the last dance is with alpha males, there's always a check. If you've got 12 people on your roster, you're going to want 12 of the most hard-nosed, competitive guys who've got a good head on their shoulders. They're smart enough to know the plays and the defensive concepts and all these things. When when there's a little bit of wiggle inside of somebody's competitive, Nate, you're going to always kind of push them. And you know, Michael Jordan at the at, at the level he is at is you know, in my opinion, the best player ever is I think it's, it's under a bigger uh, magnifying glass. It's like, oh, well, what was he doing? It's like, well, he wasn't doing anything that anybody else isn't doing all the time. I mean, we could go to the, the, the lowest team in the league in Poland or in Taiwan or whatever. I don't care where it's at. And they're still going to have guys that are pushing each other or, or on a girls team, they're pushing each other to be better. And so it's a little unfair that Steve Kerr, I guarantee you that happened with Steve Kerr and someone else. You know, so it wasn't just Michael Jordan was, you know, influencing that much. I know Michael Jordan's drive to win was huge, but I think that that's, I think that happens with, you know, any team that's looking to compete. Like what, no one's there to be the last place team or, or to, you know, to be halfway. They want to be the champions. So I don't know if that makes sense. I just think that they kind of look at it in the light as if, um, Michael Jordan was pushing them that much. Well, doesn't everybody? You know, I, mean, do, I get up this morning and I'm talking to my kids about, you know, getting their homework done and checking their tests. And I'm, you know, I'm questioning what their other motives are. You know, I didn't sit there and punch them in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> There's a while to go in this lockdown. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. The, um, I mean, the Irish national team, I mean, you, you took a while to make that senior international debut. Why, why did it really take so long? I, I played with the Irish team through the World University game. So I already had some strong bonds with some of the players that were playing. And when I started playing professionally, I, I guess it was, there's a little bit of a mixture of like, there's my own concern like oh I don't want to get hurt and I, I don't want to mess around with my professional career and then there was a little bit of well it's the Irish basketball and is it is it really at a level where we're going to be able to compete so that played out for a couple of years especially when I was on Panathinaikos you know like I, I would get a uh, the manager of the team would come up to me and he would be very irritated as if you know a gnat was circling 
I get these Irish guys off me. They keep calling about to come play for the team. And I was like, well, let me, let me talk to them. Let me talk to them. So a spirited group of we're going to be playing for something we all believe in and love. I was like, you know what? I want to look into this. And, uh, and so I did. And that's when I made a decision. I was like, I want to play again. And so when I went over and started playing, I was very excited to be a part of it again. Was it nice to to go back? Because it was like I remember writing about the time. There was a lot of sort of hoopla about you coming back. You know, the the local boy made good. Was it nice to feel that appreciation from whence you came? Oh yeah, uh, you know, going back and uh, I remember my family. You know, the 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 Irish that were living in the United States, and of course, my Irish family living in Ireland. When when we got together at that time, you know, whether it was for a sing song after the games or before this and the other, there was, yeah, it's funny. It's like, you know, there's moments you have in your life where it just everything seems like this is, this is the way I remember growing up. And this is the joy that we experienced before I had stress of bills and kids and all this. It was like getting back to that. And then, when when I would go practice and I have you know Ireland on my chest, that was there's a great sense of pride and honor inside of that you know. And then you know when you arrive somewhere, you arrive to another country and you're about to play. There's it, it was it's not like playing for anything else. It wasn't like you know having the Panathinaikos logo or Phoenix Suns. It was something totally. I mean, not to sound strange but it was more pure in sense of why i was playing having been back and you're back to, to to do some work with the kids in the regional academies what was your impression i mean do you to start using excuse, do you see the green shoots there that can lead to the next pat burke arriving in the nba i, I definitely definitely see a a big advantage um in what ireland is doing um if I can, I'll share an experience I had with you. When, when I retired and back and started working in America, you know, there's, there is a, uh, how would I say it? There's an influence in America here uh, to get what you want almost by yourself. So the short road to success is if I, if I just take the ball and try to score myself, I get all the glory for it. But in the meantime, you don't realize the chaos you're creating with your teammates that you're not passing the ball. So there's, there's an element of selfishness in American players that um, it's, it's, it's not spoken. It's just, it's just the way it is. And when I went to, the, when I went to Ireland a couple of years ago, I went to see uh, the academy where I think there was, I want to say 250 boys, I think around 15 and 250 girls. And Mark, I'm sitting there and I'm watching them play. Now, I, pr I promise you this. I just walk in, I'm watching them. And I don't see an argument. I don't see any fussing. I don't see anybody challenge, challenging the referees. I don't see any disrespect to coaches. If somebody falls down, players are running to pick them up. And I sat there. Now, the only time I've ever seen something like that is when you're at a tryout for a very high level. And I started looking around the gym <laughs> we were in, like, who's here that they're, they're competing, you know, for? 
And my good friend, Niall Berry, who's a part of Basketball Ireland, he's like, nobody, this is the way we play. And I'm telling you, it was like a punch in the head. And I sat there and I was delighted. I was like, this is the most beautiful representation of sports I've seen in a long time. And I'm just off the plane watching Americans argue with their coaches, yelling at refs, parents acting up. Now, I'm not just not to say that it doesn't happen everywhere, but at a very high level in the United States. And to see what was going on in Ireland, I was like, this is wonderful. Like anybody who's looking to create a great team for their company, for sports, whatever, they're looking for people who not only have the skill sets, but the people who have the, the, the head on the shoulders that with the emotional management, the idea that they can think clearly, they're open mind. And this is what I said, Ireland's on track. Ireland is on track because if they can do this, they're going to start to produce something that people are going to go, you know what? We got a couple of Irish players on our team and they're settling this. We got a couple of Irish people that came in. They just, and that to me will be the testimonials that are going to start to occur. Let's finish off with the NBA. And see, you're in Orlando. You're not that far from the Disney complex that the NBA is talking about restarting and as a sort of central venue after coronavirus. If you're a player just now, if you were in this league, what would your gut feeling be about going back to play, maybe being isolated away from your family for, for weeks on end to make this happen? Would it sit easily with you? Or would you be very nervous, as a lot of players in different sports are, about venturing back out again? Um, I don't think I would be nervous. You know, it's, it's funny is uh, watching the, uh, the, sh- the television program, we're talking about The Last Dance, you're seeing these guys so physically fit. They're just, you know, they're like soldiers. And I can remember at that time when I was like that, you, you just feel like you're untouchable. Like you can't, you know, you're, you're the fit of health that nothing's going to be, nothing's going to harm you or hurt you. And I think that that is what, that's what these players have. You know, they don't, they don't, I don't think they're looking at it going, I can't wait to compete. There's a hunger inside of that. So if the Orlando thing does happen, it'll be very interesting but I don't think it's going to have any type of delay because the players don't want it. Maybe the owners, because of the investment they have in such very large financial contracts, but I don't see it being uh, slowed down by the athletes, but I do see it by management. Um, Logistics alone have got to be just insane. I can't even imagine being staff members trying to put that all together, you know, but um, if it does come, that would be very exciting. Well, Pat, we wish you see continued health for you and your family and continued success in whatever you're doing. It's been always a great uh, seeing your career and catching up. But thanks so much for joining us on the MVP cast today. Yeah, well, anytime you want. You know, uh, hopefully the next time we talk, we're, uh, we're, we're outside of this, <laughs> this pandemic. <laughs> and having I, a beer I, in an actual pub. I, I look forward to the next time we, uh, we meet up. Will do. Thank you, Pat. That's it for this edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. You can check out their website at tcompliance.co.uk. All our previous editions, of course, available at mvp247.com, or you can get them via your preferred podcast provider. And please leave us a review if you can. We've got some more great editions coming up very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now. Mm-hmm.